Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Monica, Monica Perez, that is, and I am here with a returning guest, Jason Purcell. We have had a series of conversations about de-dollarization and dollarization, and I was shocked to realize this thing went from one show to a series, and that it was actually amazingly popular. I thought I was just indulging my own quirky nerdiness, but apparently it's a fan favorite, so thanks for coming back, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. And because of that, I thought it would be nice to give people an opportunity to ask you questions. So probably won't get going for a little bit, but let's uh, let's start. Let's try to hit the current stuff. I know we have to catch up on a little bit of the Bretton Woods era, which was an important era. But I feel like since um, there's just been a lot of economic news lately, and I think people really care about the interest rates because of what that means for them personally and also for the election and stuff. So let's just yeah. get into that. If people have questions, they can ask. If you're going to ask a question, put a little asterisk at the beginning so that I can, I know that you're not just chatting. People chat in the um, comment section, which is super fun, and I don't want to interfere with that. So, for okay. Sure. Um, Sounds great. Thank you. All right. So you sent me a paper that you wrote, which I love because it's funny. And I just love that. Like uh, when people write stuff that's totally mathy, but also makes me laugh. I mean, anyone else listening and reading that will not think it is, quote, funny, but it's just I like the lighthearted way it's written. Um, Somebody else I sent it to said they uh, couldn't get through it without falling asleep. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I am a little nerdy like that, but it's just funny. There was one, I just read something. Um, yeah, he just, it's just very funny. I never heard of, oh, where's my favorite thing? <laughs> it says, okay. It says, the main price index that the news cycle and Wall Street pay attention to is the consumer price index, but we're looking at core PCE because that's the one the Fed cares about. Most people will look at the PCE figures and think inflation is way higher than that, and they would be correct. Most people's grocery bills have doubled in the last three years. PCE doesn't represent the lived experience of any human being on Earth. We're only looking at it because it's the index the Fed likes. That is just true, and it's kind yep. of funny. Um, but it's it's really at the heart of what's going on right now because I personally I feel like I feel like the prices that I'm paying are twice as much the grocery store everything like I I'm still recovering from being the youngest of nine like the fact that I, we're not living hand to mouth I just never care about grocery bills I'm just in this permanent state of just like I'm not worrying about I'm not worrying about how long my shower is I'm right. not worrying about my grocery bills and now I find myself being like you know. 
are long showers super expensive? <laughs> like, <laughs> do I need to start worrying about this stuff now? Because we're definitely feeling the pinch. So, um, so tell me, you know, what, what you've been working on with respect to interest rates because and tell me why it matters. Yeah. So if you go back into, I mean, I, I would say 200 years of financial business cycles uh, or economic business cycles would maybe be a better way to say that. The first canary in the coal mine, as far as is there trouble ahead, is the rate of interest. So the panic of 1907 is a specific episode that I looked at recently because it, in a, in a couple of ways, mirrors what's happening in China right now. Uh, but I only bring that up because one of the big indicators in the panic of 1907 was the interest rate that banks would have to pay and, and brokerage firms and all these financial companies would have to pay for money on the street in order to take that money and invest in securities. You know, well, it went from about 5% one day to about 10% the next day, and then 15% the next day, and then 20% the next day. You always see big financial problems in interest rates. That's, like I said, it's a canary in the coal mine. When the great financial crisis happened in 2007, people call it the GFC of 2008, right? Or the global financial crisis, however you want to say it. Uh, so it began in 2007, specifically in August. Well, one of the first indicators of that was you started to see the London interbank offered rate. So that's the interest rate that international euro dollar banks, we talked about the euro dollar system. So that's the rate that they pay to borrow money and the rate that the ones that are lending to those banks receive to borrow money. Well, you started to see a huge blowout in what's called the spread. Uh, it used to be called the TED spread. But the most common LIBOR rate, London Interbank Offered Rate, the most common LIBOR was three months. That's, you know, going back into antiquity, that's a really, really common interval to borrow money at. And it's because of certain travel times between the major financial centers in medieval Europe. But anyway, we talked about that actually episodes ago. These are, um, so there's demand deposits and then there's what, time deposit? What is the other thing called? Yeah, so the euro dollars are time deposits. Yeah, so it's, um, I'm a banker to a, uh, to a Gulf state oil firm, right? Maybe based in the UAE. And that customer puts a million dollars in my bank. Okay, well, I'm a bank. And let's say I just want to put that deposit to work. And I have to pay interest to that uh, UAE, that Emirati oil baron, right? So the most uh, easy way that I can put that deposit to work to get interest on it so I can pay interest to my customer is just to forward it to another bank. And then that bank is going to take it and maybe they turn it into a consortium loan and they lend it to, you know, the Argentinian government or the Mexican government or whatever. And it's all okay, so I actually think this is important because that you're doing, I think we might have touched on this before. When when you put money in the bank and you expect to get it back at any time, that's a demand deposit. And right. you should not get any interest on that at all. They should have it right there ready for you. They should not be able to make money on it. But they do so you, because, yeah, they so you, are. They're yeah. multiplying it by 10 times and they're lending it out and they don't care. And if, they, if the bank does collapse because everybody comes to get it at once and they've lent it out— we have federal deposit insurance, so it's the whole entire government would bail it out, which we've seen happen, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you and you bring that up, and and I totally agree. You know that my um, my 
poster child, my mascot, if you will, for responsible banking is uh, the Bank of Amsterdam, at least from 16, <laughs> at least from 1609 to 1780 before they, you know, screwed it up. Okay, Jason, that's um, incredibly nerdy. Uh, well, yeah, my but they favorite did it. bank is the Bank of Amsterdam well, yeah. from the early <laughs> only from those <laughs> only for those years though. After 1780, it all went to shit. Um, they, Who can you talk to about this? You. Ah, thank you very much. That's very sweet. <laughs> I just I can't I can't like give you a sparkling retort about oh, but you're forgetting blah blah blah. But anyway, it is. I appreciate that you're sharing it with me, but I feel like you know it's uh it's wasted because it's so fun. Like you could you have such a grasp of the subject that it would be super fun for you probably to interact with people. But I'm glad that you're putting it down on paper, writing a book. Maybe it'll stimulate some of that back and forth. Well, honestly, I, I mean, I think you have enough of a grasp of it as well to, you know, ask really good questions. And then I ask you good questions. So, you know, I, I mean, I was telling um, I was telling it another uh, somebody else whose podcast I've been on that, you know, I just I like the way that we've been able to interact. I think it goes really well. In general, yeah, it's so. super fun. It's easy to digest the information when it's like a, a little, uh, you know, when it's back and forth a little bit. So, yeah. okay. So we have we do have a question from Gentleman Skeptic for right. clarification. Would the PCE be like the shadow stat to the CPI? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. A uh, good clarifier. Um, it's actually the opposite. So the shadow stats are a formulation of the consumer price index that uh, I don't... So forgive me, everybody in the community, but I don't put a whole lot of... Stock in shadow stats. Oh, really? Because, yeah, because during the uh, 10 years after the great financial crisis, they were saying that inflation was like, you know, 7% or something. And um, there have been attempts, there have been a couple of attempts, uh, papers I've read to replicate their formula and they come up with different results. So the idea of shadow stats is a good one. It's the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics has changed their formulation of the CPI several times over the last um, couple, uh, four decades, really. So the, the biggest one that they did is the biggest component of CPI is shelter. And um, about 30%, or excuse me, about, uh, so that shelter is 30%. Rent and housing prices, both? Rent and housing prices, yeah. So that's 30% of the index. 20% of that is owner-occupied housing. So not apartments, but it's uh, okay. homeownership. In the old days, they used to measure that 20% of the index by actually taking the prices of homes, right? Which makes sense because mm -hmm. somebody who wants to own a house is going to have to pay the price of a house in order to get into one, right? Um, in 1984, I think it was, they changed that to a stupid, ridiculous measure that's called owner's equivalent rent. And the way that they find that is they have a sample of homeowners and they go to those people and they say, if you rented your house out tomorrow, <sighs> what would you get for it? And then that's how they calculate the percent change from the previous I just, I completely ridiculous. asking <laughs> people questions. Like, mm -hmm. you, you... There is such a tremendous psychological impact. If you ask my mother how much her house is worth, oh, she'll tell you all the time. Four seventy-five. Four seventy-five. Yeah, and we're like, it's three fifty, mom. You're never much getting four seventy-five for this house. Much less how you how much you could get renting it out for. You know? Yeah, no, it's a completely that? it's a cycle. Everything. I mean, going to the doctor, how much, you know, they ask you how much you drink, it's like a hundred percent of the time they have mm. to add fifty percent to that because no one is even 
aware of how you just I hate that. It's terrible. Exactly. I and always say three drinks such... a, re- a week times eight and you arrive somewhere close to the nearest uh, <laughs> ballpark. Answer, the well, the thing about the housing, though, is there's a totally robust and well-reported market. Seriously, yeah. There's, I mean, it completely there's no clears. It there's, yeah, it's that's just really, I mean, there has to be a reason for that, which goes to like a couple of other things. When you're looking at inflation rates, when you're looking at interest rates, and you mentioned this in your paper, which, by the way, can I share this paper in yeah. the show notes? Okay. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in the paper that uh, the even the interest rates themselves, so you're talking about 1907 and 2007 and today, 1907 was very, very different because it was before the Fed. And I'm sure even when mm-hmm. the Fed was first established, it wasn't like it is now where the interest rates are basically, I would say, almost entirely artificial. I mean, they can't be entirely artificial, but they're highly influenced by these policies. Short-term rate definitely is, yeah. Yeah, so how, so you were, I think you're about to tell us why, like there are flags, there's information in the pattern in the interest rates right now, but please include Mm -hmm. how that squares with the fact that these are really artificial numbers. Yeah, Um, so I want to get to the exact answer for gentlemen skeptics question. So PCE, the reason I say it's the opposite of a shadow stat is because it tends to come in lower than CPI, right? So the idea of shadow stat is we measure CPI the way that it used to be measured. And so it tends to come in higher because all of the changes, coincident, big coincidence, right? All the changes that BLS has made to how they formulate the CPI have tended to make it lower, right? Hmm, Interesting. Um, so anyway, the idea of shadow status, like I said, is to measure it the way it was done four years ago. Well, CP, uh, PCE is done a little bit differently and it tends to come in lower, right? So, um, and it, if you, if, uh, cause Monica's going to share it. So if you do take a look at the, if you take a look at the, um, white paper or whatever, um, you'll find that, uh, you know, that's, that's explained. Like I said, the, the only reason we're even looking at it is because that's what the Fed does. Um. So interest rates, um, the deal with what's going on there is the key indicators. So we talked about 2007. Um, so there was 100 years ago, and then there was a, uh, and then there there was 100 years ago, there was 1907. And then 2007, there was a big blowout in interest rates again. So the other thing that happens is the interest rate on the quote-unquote risk-free securities tends to go way, way, way down. So whenever the yield on a bond, whenever the interest rate on a bond goes down, that's indicative of a lot of people uh, piling in to buy that type of bond. And so the other thing that we saw during the great financial crisis in 2007 is before the Fed. So what does the Fed do? They control the overnight rate, right? They're in charge of Fed funds. Fed funds is the rate at which one bank will lend bank reserves to another one. So it's basically they're taking money out of their account at the Fed and they're lending it to the other bank into their account at the Fed for an overnight. Sometimes it's a term. Sometimes it's, you know, a week, maybe a couple of weeks. But we call that Fed funds rate. That's the rate that they control. And the Fed controls a few other rates, too, not just that one. The Fed also controls what rate they're going to lend at. Uh, which is called their discount rate. So that's when a bank is in trouble and they need that lender of last resort money. You know, they need to go to the pile of gold at the end of the rainbow and say, you know, please save me, Fed. So they control that one. And then now they control this 
repo is a little bit more complicated, which we'll talk a little bit about because um, it's kind of central to our story right now. Uh, so they they control the short the short run rates, right? So 2007, you see the the two year bond yield. So the interest rate for uh, bonds of two years to maturity, United States tank, and that happens without the Fed. Flight to quality, right? That's a flight to quality. Yes, exactly. Yep. Flight to safety trade. Uh huh. And then you see the same thing with the 10 year, right? The 10 year bonds, the one year bonds. When you see or when you know that whatever is about to happen is really close by is when you see it in the T bills. And by that, I mean you've got your three months, you've got your four week, mm-hmm. you've got your six months, those kind of things. So then when you start to see the yields on those, the interest rates on those plunge. That's when you know, you know, whatever's about to happen is about to happen. So does that, is that a steepening of the yield curve usually? Like, so the longer term interest rates, do you look at the difference between the short term interest rate changes and the long term interest rate changes? Right now, what I'm talking about is just the level of any one of those rates. Got it. Um, As far as the shape of the yield curve during those times, it's, you know, the the long rate is going to tend to move less than the short rates do. And so all else being equal, that's going to, let's see, uh, the yield curve would probably get a little bit more, uh, a little bit steeper. And ultimately, if you look back through history, when you go into a recession, you have an inverted yield curve, which means that the long-term securities are paying, you know, the 10-year is paying a lower interest rate than the two-year. So you're going into it, and that's your situation. That's impossible to understand. It's like as if they expect a lot of illiquidity, but not insolvency, maybe? So cash problems in the short term, but they don't actually think, right? Because it's, I guess, interest rates are a measure of like risk and time. Mm Mm-hmm. So you have to pay more to borrow something for longer. Yeah. But if it's riskier, which a lot of times it is riskier if it's longer, that makes it go up. But if you're having an inverted yield curve, it seems to me like the risk in the short term is outweighing even the impact of giving your money away for a long time. Like the chances are you might not get it back in three months, but if you gave the guy 10 years, you probably would get it back. Yeah, and I think I think the whole problem with that with that discussion is that, uh, and this is why economics is not like, I'm, I hesitate to even call it a science because yeah. nobody, agrees, science yeah, stupid. nobody yeah. agrees on where interest rates even come from, right? And and you know what? Even when they're proven wrong, like I remember saying this about stick with it. Bernanke. Mm-hmm. It's like he's doing the wrong thing and it's going to be a disaster. And it, I mean, yes, they didn't allow things to collapse, but we're, we are now paying for his mistakes from 20 years ago. It's like, you yeah. know what? He'll yeah. always be considered a hero because he followed the paradigm that they wanted him to follow. And- that's what you get. And even if it's that virtue signaling thing, even if you're, I feel like that for the vax probably, like even if you're proven right about, say it's dangerous and I I didn't take it and see, I'm right. You're still wrong because the right thing to do would have been to follow the existing paradigm, you know, as a a solid citizen or whatever. And that I think is very strong in academia. Mm -hmm. And I would consider this academia. But yeah, so it yeah, doesn't, it can't possibly absolutely. be a science because it doesn't, even if your experiment doesn't work out, they don't change it. No, no, no. I mean, the, the, the biggest example is the Phillips curve, 
um, completely disproven in the 1970s, right? And they just they just still no no no. There's a Phillips curve. There's a trade off between unemployment and inflation. You know, Phillips curve is the idea that you can add inflation to the system in order to decrease unemployment, and then vice versa. So you can if you tighten monetary policy, unemployment goes up. If you uh, loosen monetary policy, then unemployment goes down. But right, the, and that is absolutely not true. Well, yeah. So the Phillips curve predicted that in the 1970s, if it held true, there really shouldn't have been an inflation problem, right? Well, guess what? There was. You had high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. So oh, yes, Phillips stagflation. Curve. Goodbye. I remember that. You yeah. Know. Okay. Good. But yes. they still, you know. Yeah, they still act like that's true. Okay. Got yeah. Um. Okay. Let's see. Where Where were we at? Oh, yeah. So. I think a lot of what's going on right now has to do um, is global in nature and it has to do with China. I don't know how bad this is going to turn out to be in the United States because the United States debt burden is we think it's really, really big because what we hear about is government debt. But when it comes to a big financial bust, the type of debt that we're really concerned with is actually private debt. Um, So China right now has a private debt load, and it's really hard to measure for them because they also have these state-owned banks that are intermingled, and it's not, ex- and it's kind of hard to tease out what's really public debt and what's private. But their private debt load, as as well as it can be measured, is two hundred twenty-five percent of GDP. GDP being the uh, in the currency wow. amount of everything that the economy produces over the course of a year. Yeah, so that's I don't like that ours is over one hundred percent. Theirs yeah. is over 200%. Wow. Yeah, and ours is over. So uh, the U.S. is about 146, which is high, but it's not nearly as bad as China. Um, Korea is in the, I think Korea is also in the 220s. So I wrote an article several months ago about Korea might uh, being might also being on the verge to a crisis as well. South Korea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. South Korea. So Russia... Russia, last I looked, which was a very long time ago, had a rather low debt to GDP. Probably, I mean, I thought at the time, it was that long ago, that it was because they went bankrupt in the 90s. Like, they literally just, like, walked away, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly. It was that book, like, The Smartest Guys in the Room or something. There was, like, um, but I remember thinking since then, like, not being able to borrow as a country— It really imposes a discipline. (laughs) Yes, that's wonderful. It would be really wonderful. And in my opinion, they have no right to borrow it. Like what Iceland did, I'm I'm someone who pays her debts, you know, and I think I take no quarter at all in that. But, you know, to the extent that you can control, I begin to think you can't even control your politicians. So what, what Iceland, Iceland said to the world, if you lend our politicians money, you're lending them money because we are not supporting this. We would not have consented to it. It was wrong. I think Ireland should have done the same thing. I don't think they did. Agreed. But yeah. during that debt crisis, Iceland just walked away from their their debt. And if nobody ever lent them any money again, good. Because what's the point? I always think of that as national debt is, first of all, it's taxation without representation because you are taxing future generations. It's absolutely outrageous. Mm-hmm. And how? why does the richest society that ever existed on earth, why, what are they, why can't they pay their bills? Mm-hmm. And of course, that's not the real answer. The real answer is they literally overspend on purpose just to rack up debt is what I have finally concluded. And, yep. you know, my cynicism. 
Well, and it's not really even a it's not really even a cynical take because Alexander Hamilton himself, who I would call the founder of the United States national debt, you know, he wanted to assume all of the state's debt because it would be a unifying force to keep the union together. It's not uh, Virginia's credit score, North Carolina's credit score, and Georgia's credit score, and New York's credit score anymore, which, by the way, was the first uh, stumbling block in the contention between North and South because, well, guess what? The Northern states had borrowed. Uh, which ones had borrowed more? Um, I think it was one side had Boy, had it would have to be more. the North. Yeah. Because I, the North would have cared more about about pulling away. Yeah. Um, I think but right. you, the, the, but if he had done that, it might have saved the Articles of Confederation. Oh, yeah. Because that they was would what all they, be responsible for paying that was the, But that was the argument they used to usher in the Constitution. Did he do it? Oh, assume the national debt? Yeah, did the— Yeah, so, it, was, it was part of, the, it was part of a, uh, the grand bargain, and it was part of— Okay, so that was the beginning the, of the end. Yeah, yeah, it was. For it the was, Articles it of was, Confederation. It was part of the—I um, believe it was part of the negotiations that, that solidified the Constitution— I mean, that that national debt assumption. And and at the same time, I think that was also the capital base for the first bank of the United States. Um, I have to double check that one. But but those bonds that were created when all of the national debt, all of the state's debts were assumed, that became the buy in for the for the first bank of the U.S. That's so interesting because now it's all clicking into place. I didn't even think to think of this, but if the if the states rightly were responsible for their own debts, then whoever they or whomever they owed it to would have had to deal with that. And yeah. then they would and then they themselves are if they can't ever borrow again, fine. This was that was their silver bullet, fine. You'd be, yeah. you'd have been better off. But it's because they upsourced it. And and I think it says in that creature from Jekyll Island about how that happens in Latin America all the time, like they'll just restructure their debt. It's like, you know mm-hmm. what? Just just walk away, then you're just in this perpetual state of debt that you can never pay back. And that's why I don't like the microfinance and like the unbanked. There's this movement that is completely open about getting the poor in debt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, give them money if you want to give them money. Don't give them my money, but give them money if you want to give them money, but don't mm-hmm. give them debt. I mean, it's yeah. just, uh, it really makes you wonder or makes you think that the Bible, you know, it wasn't there isn't usury against the Bible or whatever, that they has some serious wisdom there. Okay, we have another question. Here's a jubilee or not a terrible idea. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question at all. Not even um, did bit. Iceland pay back their debts at one to one with the uh GBP? What? What's the GBP? Great, uh, even though they're current. Yeah, I thought so. Um, even though their currency was valued at a fraction of the pound. And the oh well, okay, yeah, that that may be. I'll look at it, but um, but yes, I'm sure that that would be like paying with monopoly money. Sounds so good. okay, great. All right, keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is going on in China? So, uh, or just to just to backtrack on what's happening in the U.S. So it's just as far as like general economic narratives are concerned. Okay, so. Back in early 2022, and I was really, really, really early to this table. So when I started making video, which is not necessarily a good thing, when I started making videos about you know money and economics and all that stuff, it was uh, summer 2021, I want to say, and 
I was calling for a recession by like the end of the year. I bet my director at work that by the end of, uh, I want to say by the end of 2022, that the Fed would have already reversed course from rate hikes to rate cuts, like before the rate hikes had even started, right? So we're nearing the end of 2023. The rate cuts have not begun. I was very, very, very wrong. All right. So, <laughs> but the thing about, but the thing, I'm just being honest, you know, I, yeah, have, no, right? I have no crystal ball. That's what I like about you. I don't care if you're right. You're actually just telling us what you really think, where you put your money, which yep. I like. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I had, and I, and I did take the bond trade. We talk about the flight to quality. I, I took that early and had to get out because I lost. Oh yeah. Right. So yeah, I, yeah. I got in, I lost a little bit and I'm, I'm back in that trade now. Um, and it certainly could move against me, but I did take that trade, um, about a year and a half early. And, so, so you're saying you think interest rates are going to reverse yeah, no, I don't. I'm not saying I think they're going to reverse. I'm saying they've already reversed. Okay. As okay. far as well, how is your how is your trade doing? Decent. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's going okay. in the it's going in the right direction. Yeah, okay. because what that what that essentially means is that your uh, your investment funds, your ETFs that are uh, essentially big portfolios of bonds, those are going to go up in value. Right. So interest rate cuts mean right. you buy a fund of bonds, they're going to go up. If you're interested in. Right. They go up because they're paying an interest rate you can no longer yeah, get. Yeah, so yeah. the price adjusts so that what you put into it is going to yield the interest rate that is current exactly. in the market. And that means that the price yeah, has to exactly. change. Exactly. That's a really, really good explanation. Yep. It's like you yeah. were an investment yeah. banker or something. Um, a little bit, but you don't know how long ago that was. Like I could have, <laughs> I've forgotten things I've learned since then. So <laughs> I can't even remember how to be a mom. And that was a, my intervening period. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, let's see. Yeah. And the, and the flight to safety trade used to be the, the premium on gold, like the premium of gold over dollar deposits and sterling deposits used to go up. That used to be the flight to safety trade and bonds. But, you know, mm. uh, but that mm -hmm. gold premium used to be an indicator. And mm. um, so that real money would be dearer um, because and it was really straightforward back then, because what did bad financial times mean. It meant you were going to have a lot of depositors lining up to, you know, get greenbacks and gold. By the way, greenbacks were part of the base money back even before the Fed. They were part of the base money back in 1907. So a bank could pay out greenbacks and they were still, you know, fulfilling their contracts. That was a thing. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Green. The ones from uh -huh, the war? From the war, mm -hmm, from the Civil War. Yep, 1963 to 19, or 1863 to, to 1865. One to one, it was mm -hmm. money yep. good. Greenbacks were money good, and people took it. But not, but not the Confederates. Not the Confederates. <laughs> uh, no, no, that was uh, that was. Propelled I for remember. That. <laughs> yes, exactly. They would use it for kindling. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, interesting, yep. interesting. So, so wait, can I just quickly ask, in your knowledge or impression, if that's the case, then. I would think that you would import not your import. You wouldn't import that much. You would like it would mess up your or it would in your balance of trade, trade balance, whatever would be. You would export more stuff. If you had funny money like that, it would just be too expensive to pay. People would not even take it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it became in the South, okay. it became very difficult to buy anything. I mean, if you were. 
you know, that's why anybody who's descended from an old Southern family that was around at that time is, is probably has some pretty tough genes because those were some hard years. I mean, you're oh, talking yeah. about using yeah, tree that's bark a good point. instead of coffee, you know, like. Yeah. Wow. What, what about, did. but, but even the greenbacks in the North mm-hmm. like to try to buy British textiles, but of course the North would be happy with that. They would because. because mm-hmm. Because of the yeah, manufacturing base. I think that's what the war was about. <laughs> because the manufacturing base in the North could didn't have any competition. Right. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. It, it would be beneficial to them. Yeah. Assholes. So, see, that's why, and this is really important because it's so hard to intuit why the Electoral College is so important, why you can't have one vote, one person, mm-hmm. because these regions that have are sparsely populated, like farm regions or, you know, whatever ranches and stuff like that they're important they have their own interests they have massive quantities of land they are a big part of this country but factory and city density can absolutely overwhelm if it's one-to-one vote overwhelm their vote every single time and you you are baking a civil war into your future Mm -hmm. if you get rid of the electoral college and that's exactly you know it didn't save them but that's why it's there and it's totally valid in a huge country like this, which it probably even shouldn't even be this huge, but... <laughs> for sure, no. <laughs> topic for another Definitely. time. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what happens is... So, okay, so so interest rates are already... You can keep with what happens, but I feel like right now where we're at is interest rates, you think, are already backing off. And I, I definitely want to slide into the real, like, the actual interest rate movement and the policies. Yes. So, yeah, okay. So the... So back when in 2022, right, basically everybody agreed, uh, maybe a year or so ago, everybody agreed in the economics and the financial commentating and all that stuff. Everybody agreed that there was going to be a recession. Like there were there were almost jokes of headlines saying uh, the most predicted recession in the history of the world is still not here. You know, that kind of stuff. I guess predicting like 10 out of the last five recessions kind of thing. Yeah. But Dr. Gloom. But even the main, but even the mainstream was talking about it. Like if you turn on Bloomberg, it would be like, you know, the, the markets are pricing in a recession. And part of that was because, you know, the S and P 500 and the NASDAQ both peaked at the very end slash January 2nd, uh, 2022. And so it was, everybody was in that mood. They were in that sour mood of like, you know, stocks are down and, you know, it feels like there's going to be a recession. Okay. Well, in the last six months, probably everybody just threw that shit out the window, right? They just, uh, everybody's, uh, especially in the, especially in the mainstream, the wall street journal. And, uh, of course the pundit, the, the politically minded will never admit to the fact that there's a recession coming around the corner, unless they're the party out of power because they want that to be true. But, you know, the sentiment, I'll just say, because, you know, you read the Wall Street Journal, I read the Wall Street Journal, it's not the Bible, that's not like where we base our opinion about what's going on actually in the world, but, you know, we use it to figure out what everybody else thinks is going on kind of thing. The sentiment was very, very obvious. In 2022, it was, holy crap, recession around the corner. Well, 2023, maybe midway through. Now, nah, now you're going to be a recession. Soft landing. It's all about the soft landing. Soft landing this, soft landing that. The labor market is still strong. 
the Fed can't kill this economy, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I've seen so, I've screenshot so many headlines <laughs> in the last few months about how it's just, ah, oh, the Fed has engineered the perfect soft landing. They've raised interest rates from zero to five and a quarter percent and then 12 yeah. and uh, whatever, 19 months, and they didn't plunge us into a recession. This is the most masterful thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. It's, it's unfreaking believable. Well, um, that's not what the uh, that's not what the interest rates are saying. So there was a point up until um, I would call it October, right? August, September, October. I was starting to question my own this this year. Yeah, yeah this year, like two yeah, months ago. Yeah. So okay. two months ago, I was really questioning my own thinking about this and starting thinking, you know what? Maybe they did pull off the soft landing, and the reason for that is because the interest rate futures the bond yields and the interest rate futures were more or less agreeing with the fed so powell said so if you if you go back several months like say april march april 2023 the bond yields dropped a lot in response to the banking crisis when we had all of those regional banks shut down i think there were 10 of them and so the the bond yields plunged those two years those 10 years that we were talking about earlier by like half a percent in a week which is a lot which is a lot. Okay. So the, the average movement in one of these. That's the rate. Yeah. So the price was very moved a lot. Yeah. So the, the average, um, the average movement, by the way, for these types of bond yields is like three to five basis points. So three to five hundredths of a percent in a day. Right. So th that's the average. Right. So this is 50 basis yeah. points. Yeah. So it's, it's quite big moves. So around this time, um, and then you've got interest rate futures markets, which are doing the same thing. So an interest rate futures contract allows you to bet on the direction of the federal funds rate. Each one of these contracts has a rate that is implied by the price of that contract. And so people look at those um, futures contracts in order to, and there's several, there's one for the secured overnight financing rate, there's one for Fed funds, there's one for, um, well, there used to be one for LIBOR, LIBOR's not around anymore, but there's a bunch. There's ones for all the European interest rates. Um, so there's futures contracts on all these rates around the world. They're all doing the same thing. So they're plunging. Powell keeps on raising rates. The Fed keeps going up. They keep going up. They keep going up. They hit five and a quarter percent. Eventually, he does what I can describe as maybe this is not not exactly what's going on, but the Fed seems to have bullied the market into agreeing and just saying, no, we're, rates are going to be higher for longer. So that's the message that the Fed has tried to send for the last year. You're not getting rate cuts. You're not getting rate cuts. Shut up, you stupid hedge fund mofos. We're not giving you rate cuts. Stop asking for heroin. This is not going to happen. And it looked, like I said, August, September, October, the two-year, the interest rate futures, they were pretty much in line um, a little bit. Well, let me look at the, the, the charts are in the um, paper that's going to be distributed. So you can see for yourself how the Fed's outlook compared to the market's outlook. But the market's outlook had moved up and moved up and moved up. And I was thinking, wow, okay, whatever we thought was about to happen, maybe is not about to happen. Maybe the markets, you know, the bond market has agreed with higher for longer, okay? People are not flying to safety because we don't see those yields tanking anymore, all this kind of stuff. Okay, so 
call it end of October. I'm looking at your charts. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to get an idea myself. Um, so call it the end of October. I'm thinking, okay, maybe soft landing is really in play. But problem is, I got a couple of other other um, or at least one other indicator that I'm going to uh, touch on as well. Problem is, what's happening in China is systemic and it's global. And nobody, I don't think, is immune to that. So in mid to late October, everything that I just talked about, so just think about it as the two-year bond yield, and then let's say the Fed Funds Futures contract for uh, December 2024, so about 12 months in the future, right? Those start to go the opposite direction. They're moving up, they're moving up, they're moving up. And at that point, I'm saying the the markets are agreeing with higher for longer. The Fed has bullied them into submission. They're not predicting a recession anymore, right? We could very well, the yield curve has been inverted for like 18 months now, right? We very well could have a yield curve that is no longer inverted. Maybe this really is a soft land. Okay, mid to late October, all of that plunges in the opposite direction. And then crude oil prices do the same thing, okay? Crude oil prices, they go up and they go up and they go up. And this is at the same time as a crisis in the, in the Middle East, right? Crude oil prices are supposed to, you know, to the moon with that kind of stuff. They don't. They go from 87 one week to 75 the next week. And they've just been languishing and rage, range trading ever since. Okay. Crude oil is a big, uh, pretty straightforward indicator of economic activity for the, you know, leading. leading. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Around the same time, the connection, yes. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but uh, I read, maybe it was William Engdahl, I can't remember who, uh, said that the single most important indicator of any kind, and I believe it would be a leading indicator, is steel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another one I looked at. So, And I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because it's so real. Like energy, oil is what you use to manufacture, but steel is infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, okay, I, I would, I would agree with it's that. Just something to think about. Yep. Keep going. Um, let's look at what steel prices have done. You must have notes because I get to interrupt you and you still pick up the thread. So that's good. And I, I have another question that you're going to have to get to, okay. but I'll let you finish. Yeah. Um, in October, like, okay, so the rates turn around in October. So since then, let's just call it since the end of October, the two-year Treasury yield has dropped from, I need to expand this so I can see. Um, it's at least, what is it? Okay. Uh, so five and a quarter percent. So that's right where the Fed is. No longer inverted, at least at the short end, of the, at least with the short rates. Okay, so that's right where the Fed is, 5.24 in mid-October 2023. Now we're at 4.6. Okay. It's mm. in a in a few weeks. Um that's this is okay. So this is the Fed funds rate. This is the two-year bond rate. Oh, okay. Because the Fed funds rate is the thing they yeah, set. Fed funds has not dropped. Right. Fed funds has not dropped. Right. 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 Yeah, right. So okay. this is the two-year bond rate. So all mm-hmm. right. So the spread. The spread has changed yeah. a lot. So now you have not an inversion, not a yield curve inversion between right. like two years and 10 years. You've got one between right. overnight and two years. Right. So that's meaningful. Right. Okay. Right. Um the you have an inversion. It's inverted. Yeah, it's inverted and it's inverted at, at a really short interval, like I said, overnight to two years. Um, okay. And then 
same time. So end of October or, you know, mid-October, end of October. So wait, that makes me feel like recession is imminent. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I'm actually thinking that, uh, because of recent employment, um, employment numbers, I think it's already here. Um, I, I think that we've actually, I think that when the National Bureau of Economic Research does their dating thing that they do, they're probably going to say it was the second or, uh, no, they're probably going to mm-hmm. say it was the fourth, third or fourth quarter of 23. Yeah. Because, um, well, I don't have to wait on that. So if, if you look at the, this is not usually talked about, but the U1 unemployment rate is just the percent of the civilian labor force that's been out of work for 15 weeks or more. Okay. And the labor force is defined by people who want to work or people who can People work. who are actively applying for jobs. So it, it does suffer yeah. from that, you know, BS uh, thing that, yeah, it. I hate it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> um, awful. Yeah. So, and, and so the U1 is usually much, much lower than the unemployment rate. So like in April of 2023, it was 1.1% while unemployment was, you know, three, three and a half or something. Okay. But this indicator, this, this rate never turns up unless you're coming down already from a peak. So you're coming down the mountain. It never turns up off of a low without it leading to a recession, without it next going higher. So it bottomed in basically March, 2023, March, April, 2023 at 1.1%. Now it's up to 1.4 as of September. So or that October, excuse me. very fundamental measure of unemployment is over. rising. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Um, the unemployment count, according to what's called the household survey taken by the BLS is also going up uh, gradually, but it's turned up. Um, and then the other thing that you have to think about too, is that when you get closer to a recession or you're in one, there's data revisions with all of these releases. So if you look back in the chart, you can see very clearly, oh, unemployment went up in September of 2007 and, or, you know, December of 2007. And the NBER said that the recession started in December of 2007. Well, at the time, you may not have actually been able to see that because the data was inaccurate, right? Because when you look at these time series, if you go and, and pull the data, that's taking into account the data revisions that happen later, maybe three months, maybe four months after the first print is released. The tendency when you're in a recession is for the data revisions to come in lower than, you know, as opposed to higher. So on average, the data, it's, it's going to be evenly dispersed around whatever number was there before. So the, the, the standard error or whatever is going to, you're going to have some that come in lower, some that come in higher, blah, blah, blah. Well, in a recession, it, it always tends to be lower. So whatever the job gains were, it's going to tend to be lower. Whatever the unemployment rate is, it's going to tend to be, you know, the, the opposite. It's going to be higher. Yeah. So that's the other thing you have to think about is that you know, if you see an ever so slight upturn in unemployment right now, that could look a lot steeper in three months when right. revisions come out. Okay. Uh, is this a good time for me to say a bunch of yeah, stuff? Yeah, sure. This has always been my problem. Like, I can't separate, like, the theoretical stuff and, like, my cynicism about the news and my analysis of propaganda from what's actually happening in the market. So I'm just going to give you my like propaganda analysis and all that. So I looked at the COVID thing and I was confident that there, I've definitely mentioned this to you like three times already. I saw like 
Interest rates were near zero, 11 years into an expansion. I was like, this doesn't work. They have to, they always cut. If you look, I looked at every year there was data, like every 10 years, whatever, for like 100 years, <clears throat> or since the beginning of the Fed, and every single recession, which was basically a 10-year business cycle, mm -hmm. they lowered rates by 5% percentage points. So I thought, I th they lower basically went from 7% to 2%. Like 2% was the lowest it ever got. Now, so I was thinking, well, they have to raise rates to, they were saying three and three quarters was like, they're definitely raising them to five. Mm -hmm. And they're, and you know, historically they would, they really should raise them to seven. Now I realize that their bottom line is not going to be 2%. It's going to be 0%. They had to get it to five, but then they're going to bring mm -hmm. it down again. So, uh, so are they like, this isn't really a question. I'm just going to say this and then I want to say something else. Like, so now I'm thinking, are they going to just like turn around and bring that back down again? Like are they they worked that it took them so long to reverse zerp or whatever. Like no more interest, zero interest in perpetuity. And then I was thinking, well, maybe you know I don't give them credit for a soft landing, even if they don't get a recession, because we had a recession. COVID was an artificially induced mm -hmm. recession during which inventory was worn out, was mm -hmm. blown off. And uh, and jobs were cut. And I mean, massive, like it would probably be the worst recession in U.S. history. So given that that's what a recession is for, why isn't it possible? I don't, I'm not going to say it's a soft landing, but I really, I don't understand why we need a recession. And then maybe you can tell us what is a recession and, and you know, why do we care? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that the difference between what happened in 2020 and a recession that is, um, you know, call it more organic, is that in, so the problem with the COVID recession is that there was no deleveraging, right? And by deleveraging, I mean the uh, defaulting and the liquidation right. of debt. So even in the fallout from the GSV, when you have all of these bailouts and you've got, you know, the Fed is buying all these toxic okay. assets and everything, you still manage to have a reduction in what we talked about before that that private debt to gdp ratio the private debt to the mm -hmm. uh, production the amount of production in the economy over the course of a year mm -hmm. you still had a reduction in that ratio from 175% down to like 140 it was it was actually somewhat somewhat large in the united states um didn't get down below 100 <laughs> right like it probably should i mean that's actually the problem that's actually is been the problem for 20 years is below, that they did not. Yeah, we don't allow full deleveraging. Yeah, they didn't let the debt implode, which is why what you would have had was a deflationary collapse, which is something like it's hard for me to get my mind around like what's deflation, but you have to understand it's a debt based currency in order to understand the possibility and the devastation of a debt of a of a collapse like mm -hmm. that. So that brings me back to something I've also said to you at least three times, which is. So now you have all of this inflation, which it took 20 years and COVID to justify, mm -hmm. and that is inflating that collapsed debt without actually having that creative destructive process. And so now I would say, okay, you said we didn't have the deleveraging, but if you look at, at it that way, the debt is actually way lower unless it's like floating rate debt or whatever, it's actually way lower because all of a sudden you've halved the value of the principal by having a lot of inflation. Yeah, you could say that if the value of the principal had been cut in half, but I would- um, I, It has right. not. The post-World War II inflation 
was enough to really reduce it. Um, the issue is that even with the inflation, it's still been piling up. You know, the they're keep borrowing. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. why the, they're borrowing these new yeah, dollars. The debt load, you know, the, the credit yeah, expansion and, and the interest rate. If they had short-term interest, if they had short-term they loans, they're replacing those rates. loans with super high rate, and that that shit will pile yeah. up. You ask anybody who had, you know, being that I came from a really broke background, when I went into, you know, after I got out of school, even though I got scholarships and everything, I was living on credit cards. Mm-hmm. It was like 20%. And I remember the gal, I wish I knew her name because she was so nice. Um, an older banker, and older bankers are not nice, right? So she was nice mm-hmm. to me, and I'll never forget her. But she said, pay off your credit cards. The difference between paying interest, mm-hmm. big interest like that, and earning, because this was still, I'm not going to tell you what year, but a really long time ago where, where like 2% was not a normal interest rate. You could make more yeah. than that. And uh, she said, like, the Delta will blow your mm-hmm. mind, like get your debt under control. And uh, and she was right. So it, people underestimate the impact of- Interest. Of that kind of interest. Yeah. And it, when it compounds monthly or whatever, like on your credit mm-hmm. card. So I can see, right, they're not getting out of the problem. But that's, you know, wow. Oh, that sucks. Well, you answered my question, but I, I don't like it. I don't like oh, your answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there's a reason that the acid test, right? There's a reason that the acid test on the- in in um you know stock valuation is current assets and current liabilities right that current liabilities is is literally your interest expense plus any other principal you might have to pay off within the next year but most of that debt obligation you know most of those debt service payments are just going to be interest you know because a lot of these corporations mm-hmm. they borrow for five years at right. a time i don't know what the average corporate bond uh maturity is, but I'm pretty sure it's in the neighborhood of five, you know, four, five, six years rather than, you know, six months. So my thing was high yield. Did I tell you that? I was a high yield bond investment. Wow. So I would, I worked for the guys who less left Drexel. I was the only chick, which was basically the reason I said, I was just like, oh, I love being the only chick. I'll take this job. And when I got there, they said, are we... I had one like kind of rabbi who got me into the group and the other guy's like, oh, are we going to have to start watching our mouths? And the, and the guy who got me in, there's like, she's going to have to start watching her mouth. <laughs> so it was definitely rough and tumble, but it was the old Drexel guys. And I don't remember anything, but I do, to the extent that I did anything, it was these high yield bonds, which, you know, would be like 10 year. Yeah. And Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, those, those guys invented it. Oh, yeah. No, they they were hardcore. I worked for guys who, even till I left the company, they were still getting checks from, like, they they had a private equity uh, fund within Drexel. Like, these guys all put their money, and and that stuff is, like, super tax advantage Mm -hmm. or anything. Even now, I still, every once in a while, will get a check from something I invested in. Just the firm be like, oh, we'll we'll give you the money like a non-recourse loan. And I mean, it was just tiny because it was me, but the Drexel guys had had some serious like residuals. Mm-hmm. I remember they were, that was the go-go. I wasn't there in the go-go 80s. I just saw it in the rear view mirror. Right. But, uh, but those, those, those guys were the <clears throat> breasts. Right. <laughs> that was the thing that the Coke heads ruined. Like they brought, I'm sure it was the M&A guys because they had to stay up all night. And... Their expectations that you could work two or three 
days without sleeping. Yeah. Just if you're trying to do that on Starbucks, you get violently yeah, ill. True. If you're starting, to, if you're trying to do it on grade A Coke, <laughs> that's a totally different story. Right. Anyway, I was in the <laughs> Starbucks era, and it just—I don't know—it burns you out. Literally, because that's a lot of acid for your stomach. I mean, you drink enough coffee, dude. And, and I remember being like, "Wow, you guys have free Starbucks? That's so awesome!" And then you know, like two 6 a.m.s into, you know, an M&A deal. And I was like, I get this free Starbucks now. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. you, it's like the Blitzkrieg. Didn't, didn't Hitler give them a speed <laughs> for the Blitzkrieg? It's like, yeah, that's not, that wasn't a favor to you. <laughs> <laughs> that was for me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, yeah. They, they. I don't know if you can, if freebasing increases your productivity. I'm not sure there's freebasing, but I definitely saw little razor lines on stuff. <laughs> okay. So I hope there's no, this isn't the family audience, like what kids would be listening. That's the beauty of it. It's like your natural rating is like, there's no chance in the world there's a kid listening. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm glad you told me that. I wanted to add just uh, two more things. So uh, a recession, just by the way, is what, like two down quarters in a row or what? Well, we had that in 2022. There were two negative quarters of GDP. They didn't declare it a recession. So um, ultimately, the way that you can think of it is there's less stuff being produced. And there's a couple of and there's a couple things that, you know, the NBER needs to see in order to declare one. Not only does GDP have to mm. decline, but you got to okay. have a rise in unemployment and you got to have a, a lowering it. in industrial production. And between those three things, if you see those three things coincide, then they'll call it, you know, they'll call it one. It's funny because okay. if you measured a recession as a decline in GDP per capita, we would have actually been in recession for like 25 out of the last 50 years. So it's oh, a, yeah, wow. I, I looked into that one That's time. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. But you can then think like that what you're doing, if you're if you are personally experiencing a rising standard of living under those circumstances, mm -hmm. what you're saying, and this I think I read this book against the grain. I don't know if you've ever read this by uh, James Scott, a Yale professor, and he just goes back to like the beginning of time and he says that like since the beginning of a civilization mm -hmm. all cities uh burn out their workforce they have to get work from immigration mm -hmm. they have to they just eat people <laughs> so so what what you're saying is if you're experiencing a rise in living standards under these circumstances it's because of the immigrants making much less than you know their 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 living standard there's probably a big big gap between People who were born here and went to, like, say, you know, high school here, college here, and people are immigrants in living standard. Well, but I, I would, I yeah, I don't know um, exactly what to make of it. Um, I mean, I'm saying that's my explanation for what you're observing because I, I don't feel like. Well, if you if you just think of yeah, yeah, that could be that could be it. If you just think of GDP, like, what is GDP? It's the dollar value of all the stuff that's produced, all the new stuff that's produced in the economy in a year. And so the per capita GDP is just the amount, the dollar value of new stuff per person in the country. So to me, if if what you're really measuring is standard of living, that means more stuff. If it's a if it's a good standard of increasing standard of living year, if it's a non-recessionary year, if that's how you're measuring it, then that means more new stuff in the year per person, right? 
to me, that's that's what increasing standards. Right, and I'm saying, if 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 you're saying that that's been going down. Oh, I know. I was just saying in general, if you look at the last 50 years and you, there, there are many, many years where GDP increases, but GDP per capita does not, right? Like the amount of stuff goes up, right. but the amount of stuff, per, like the population increases more than. Yeah, no, I get okay. what you're saying, but I, I'm thinking, but I'm saying, I bet if you took one more pass at that data and looked at the standard of living for people who were born mm-hmm. here, like if you took GDP, if you took consumption by people who were born mm-hmm. here, divided by the number of people who were born mm-hmm. here, the dollar value of that would be increasing. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And then I mean, it's, I'm just saying, and I'm not making a social no, comment. I'm no, saying that's no. why we always have immigration. That's what it's for. Yeah. And then those immigrants, their children are in that category. Yeah. My my grandparents were immigrants. Because the denominator so, is population, yeah. and that number is going to be influenced by your immigration rate. Really. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, that's that what sense. it is mm-hmm. because we don't have the birth yeah. rate. So, however, but I would just make the further comment that doesn't mean that the even if the average standard of living is going down, the voter standard of living might be going right. up. Right. And that's what they want. So maybe, yep. but if they loved us, uh, or even if they want to exploit yeah, us. Yeah, I just always thought it was interesting that if GDP is supposed to be the standard of living measure, why don't we, when you compare two countries to each other, yeah, you I agree with you. GDP, yeah, it's smart. You use GDP per capita. So when right. we measure whether or not we're in a recession, why don't we also use GDP per capita? Yeah, it's smart. I'm sure there's a reason for that. Uh, one thing, if you ever felt like uh, doing research on demand, one thing that I've I've cited because I did just quick and dirty back of the envelope, but the 19th century, I am very interested in real wages mm-hmm. and like consume, you know, CPI or whatever. Like I want, I, I, my argument is that productivity gains were captured in part by labor in the 19th century, mm-hmm. but not ever after Keynesianism was introduced because I believe that is the purpose of Keynesianism. If you know what I mean. So Keynesianism is there, in my opinion, to inflate away more than inflate away any wage gains. And keep people spending. Which Right. So the the Keynes wanted capital to absorb productivity gains 100% mm-hmm. and give labor the impression that they were With absorbing the some of the productivity gains yeah. by yes. So that's why I feel like if you did 19th century and then, you know, you know 100 years ending in 1900 and the 100 years ending in 2020 you would i think that would prove that point but yeah well i think we i think we touched on the the 19th century and maybe our first episode so you, you did see that yeah the, but that's just a specific yeah, 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 that yeah. i really if if you stumble upon it i'd like mm-hmm. to see because it it's actually a little tricky to get because i was trying to figure out like it the price be. of milk in 1800 the price of milk in 1900 the average wage you know the average wage for something in 1800 versus 1900 and i feel like standard of living was rising in a free market. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like this, I, I only bring that up because I was suggesting that you need immigration to allow standards of living to go up. But I'm only saying that in this system, I don't in think that's a real rule. In a highly inflationary system, you need it. I, you need somebody yeah, to be making a Keynes really, really us. low wage. Is essentially what, yeah. 
That makes sense. Maybe, yeah. So I'm just, there's some idea there. The last thing I wanted to ask you before we move on to the China issue, and then I'm going to let you go because you're so tired. Not tired. You've been working so hard recently, and it was very nice of you to come on, but I'm not going to keep you on for two and a half hours like I normally do. Um, it would not um, bother me a bit. Trust me. We can go as long really? as we need to. It's enervating. Okay, so here's a big question. So you said that unemployment has to go up or is going up. Is is inflation, from what I read in the Wall Street Journal, which I basically don't believe, but it does say inflation is going down. And I think yeah, I think it actually said that the price level is going down. So if someone says inflation is going down, that to me means the rate of, the rate of inflation. Mm -hmm. So so yes, you're still going to pay a dime more for everything, um, but it'll only go up a dime every other month instead of a dime every month. But if he's saying that we're stabilizing or even paying a dime less, you know, next year, I think that's almost impossible. Is that something that you're looking at in a way to gauge? even really what the Fed is going to do or what we're looking at? Because the Fed says that's what they're looking at. But Yeah. Yeah. And then the thing about the Fed is they all, you know, they they talk about PCE, you know, uh, personal consumption expenditures. That's their index that they like. But if the CPI looks the way they want it to look, then they'll talk about the CPI and they'll react to the CPI, right? Uh, what's going on right now is that in general, the article that you sent was uh, durable goods, and the Wall Street Journal was commenting mm -hmm. on the fact that durable goods prices have decreased, which is uh, which is accurate, at least according to the way that they're measured. The general index, so you could take consumer good, which is cars, washing machines, um, you know, ovens, appliances, ovens, appliances, probably microwaves, stuff like that. Um, which to me, houses are just a durable good, right? But that's that's a whole different discussion. Um, yeah, they're not an right. asset. Like, I'm sorry, they're a durable good. That's all it is. Um, oh, yes. Oh, that's such a great way of thinking of it because I always try to separate the value of the land from the value of mm -hmm. the house. You know, I'm always when I look at something like that, it means nothing to me. I need to understand, like, you peel the the house off, and you'll try to get a realtor to do that, and she will nope. not do it. They will not do, do it. it. And I'm like, that's the fact. That's what we're exactly. talking about here. Yep, they won't do it. Exactly. Yeah. No, and it should. It should. Like that's that should be part of every realtor's. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Just how they it would talk change to their the clients. way. You know. stuff is market, you know, because, yeah, because the house, you know, the land is, land is special yep. <laughs> and houses are not, my house is special because it's old, but uh, I have a couple of questions for you here from the uh, viewing audience. Do you expect a downturn in the stock market or do you think it will be flat? What is your personal view? And no, it is. Don't run to the bank on this. We don't know this guy. I just met him like two months ago. So <laughs> exactly. I have no um, idea if he's rich or poor, if he makes money. I don't know. He shouldn't even, if he's so good, why is he even talking to me? Right. So um, go ahead. To, but tell us really. But I do, I do think he's honest. So let's hear what you honestly think. Yeah. So what I, okay. Am I, I'm actually getting the monthly CPI numbers because I want to make sure I'm accurate about this in a second. Um, okay, there it is. Okay, you good. Um, let me take, okay, whatever. All right, so I am, um, do okay, so first thing, do not 
listen to what I say that I'm long or short right now and then go do it because I'm a trend follower. So my action changes based on the price. And if you don't plan to look at that price every single day and adjust your decision, do not listen. And you shouldn't even listen, even if you do want to look at it every day, because you don't know what rules I'm following. So just, you you know, just don't. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. If you want, if you want details, uh, you can go to jpersell.me and, um, you know, I think there might be, yeah, just sign up for jpersell.me and, um, you know, you can also send an email to contact at jpersell.me and, you know, just let me know you're interested in that sort of thing. But, um, I'm as of today short, the, uh, NASDAQ ETF, the QQQ. Um, via, I just bought some put options and I do think that what's going on right now, as far as the stock market is concerned, is that I don't think that the economic correction is priced in. Um, I think that the downturn that was seen between the end of 2021 and say, you know, early 2023, because right now what's happening is if you pull up a chart of the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or whatever, and you just take a look at it, we're basically bumping up against that previous all-time high. Um, And the assumption there is that, wow, look at how far stocks have come. I mean, this year, the NASDAQ is up like 40% you know, on the year because it came down, you know, because the trough was almost exactly a year ago um, or so. So it it looks like it's up 40% on the year. And so the assumption is, okay, soft landing, it's going to keep going, right? And that may be the case. Like I said, price is the only truth. Um, I love macroeconomics, but I don't invest on macroeconomics because it gives you nothing as far as timing is concerned. Like I, I went and back tested what would happen if you bought and sold the S&P 500 based on the shape of the yield curve because yield curve predicts recession, right? Well, guess what? It doesn't work, right? Timing is everything. Yeah. I mean, it's so... It just really is like there's uh, you can be as right as you can if you don't have the timing and nobody really has the timing. And I would even say just buy now and hold it for 20 years, which is what Warren Buffett says. But then I look at Japan and I'm like, well, there are paradigm shifts every once in Mm -hmm. a while. There are turning, you know, there are turning points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Buy and hold would have been a horrible strategy all the way, you know, from 1991 all the way until uh, 2015, I think, is when it started to turn up again. It's yeah, that's insane. Um, so and and it's not terrible on its face to uh to buy and hold, but there should still be a reservation price at which you get out, right? Like if you had been invested in Japan and you, you know, you were a buy and holder, that's fine. You could have, you know, at a 20% correction from that all-time high, it's fine to assume, okay, this is going to turn back up eventually. But when you're down 45% from the all-time high, you know, and the economy's in the toilet, it's like, you know, buy and hold has really only worked um, for one stock market, and that's the United States. <laughs> you know, if you go back like- Wow, interesting. Years, yeah, it's not, they're not all like that. I personally, I feel like the absolute, I mean- this is just me because I'm risk averse. I just feel like, and Dennis Miller said it once too, is like pay off your debt and then buy things you need. Mm-hmm. And that is what I told my husband once. I was like, you know, we were renting and renting and it's just so wrong for someone our age to rent. But when we moved to LA, it's like, it was just, it was just impossible to get into that really market, hard. buy a house. Mm-hmm. 
not sure you're going to stay. And um, I made him just buy a, a little place somewhere that we could, if we had to live in in retirement, we could. And in the meanwhile, Airbnb it out because I was like, look, you have to have an asset in kind, like the kind of asset you're going to need is a good way to think about it. So if you need a place to live in your retirement, maybe invest in Florida real estate or something like that, but yeah. like just have what you need. And my husband collects wine. So I'm like, hey, you got three square, you know, <laughs> three squares in a cot and wine. Like that's all you need. Like you don't need anything else. And I feel like that's just a good way to like start your baseline. Gentleman Skeptic says stack silver, invest in seeds, land, and lead. I mean, that lead seems to be a pretty good, a pretty good uh investment, man. There is always a shortage of ammo. I almost <laughs> wonder if part of why Sweden is joining NATO is I think they make ammo. Oh, really? Yeah. That very well I, could be. I think so. Well, that's the case. I, I would like Nobel. if they could like cut whatever tariffs on that and make it a little cheaper here. That would be great because yeah, or have dibs. Yeah, just dibs. Yeah, because ammo has gotten anyway really expensive. Cheese. It really has. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so to, to give a on. solid answer on on that though, yeah, uh, I don't think that the 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 fallen earnings, the fallen revenue all that stuff that is associated with the recession. I don't think that that's priced into either the S and P five hundred or the NASDAQ. Um, I think that the correction that was seen after 2021 was in response to interest rates. So um, when interest rates go up, the value of a bond, uh, let's say that you have a bond that pays 2.5% every year. Uh, the current interest rates goes from 2.5 all the way to 5.5, or you know, let's just say it doubles, it doubles to five. Well, the value of that bond goes down. Okay. That's a very straightforward relationships relationship. It's very well known that bonds are that way. Well, guess what? Stocks are a long duration asset too, right? So they pay dividends. And ultimately, what are people who invest in stocks now? They're not really investing to get dividends. I'm sorry, most people. It's the same thing as cars. When most people buy cars, they're buying a payment. All of my retirement stocks pay dividends. Well, good, good. That's all I buy. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, um, I guess I am risk averse. Yeah, um, it, th that's great. Um, there's Well, it was doing well in like a zero interest rate. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's a, anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. But most people when they go and they invest in the stock, the, the I'd say maybe 95% are not doing are not looking for dividend stocks they're saying put me in the S&P 500 or the Nasdaq or some combination of both and let me buy and hold until i turn 65 and then the yeah. plan is not to collect dividends it's to you know gradually sell the yeah. portfolio yes. over time so yes, you're betting of course so you want price appreciation but that price appreciation has a time element to it and anything that has a time element to it is going to tend to decline when interest rates go up so there's a that's that's true for most assets. So that's why um because the interest rate is your opportunity is basically guaranteed of having that asset return. Okay. It's the interest rate is your opportunity cost of holding right. a long duration asset because so that's why ZERP created a stock bubble. Yeah. ZERP is zero interest rates in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. So when nobody could get any money in a bond, which would tell you like, this is this risk, it's like a triple A rated, uh -huh. this is the interest rate you're getting, you know what you're getting, and it's it's a very straightforward thing. When that, yield. you know what you're getting is zero, mm -hmm. you have to put your money someplace else. And I 
you know, I think that's probably part of why they do it. Yeah, no, it, it is. And and even, I mean, Ben Bernanke said that himself. He said, we're trying to juice the wealth effect. So when people's, you know, portfolios sure. go up, then they'll feel more comfortable <laughs> spending. Yeah, absolute <laughs> douche, you know, um, totally. But yeah, that's exactly what he was. He's saying, we're going to use the wealth effect. Okay, well, what does that mean? The wealth effect is people feel more wealthy. How are they going to feel more wealthy? Well, the stock market's going to go up and then they'll feel more comfortable about spending. And since we're all Keynesian economists and we believe that spending is the truth and spending, you know, consumer spending drives the economy. You know, that's how these people think. They're like, all we got to do is is get people psychologically primed to spend and then we'll be out of this. That was their whole plan. This this upsets me because... Who benefits? And one of these guys in the chat was saying, like, it's just the brokers benefit from the stock market more than anybody else. I I don't know. I mean, stock market does go up, and I, it seems I know to, some people in their fifties and sixties who, who have really benefited from some, you know, some, the fucking boomers. <laughs> they get it all. I'm a buster. I'm Generation X. I get nothing, <laughs> nada. But yes, there are people who make big money. But what bothers me is, and and this just bothers me about stimulation, about infrastructure, about investment, about um, suppressing interest rates, about giving tax deductions for um, uh, like real estate, which subsidizes like tearing shit down, um, wars for oil. All of this stuff, all of it is subsidizing consumption. Mm -hmm. And... And it, it, you know, we're human beings. You know what I mean? I'm a creature composed of body and soul made to the image and likeness of God. Like, I am not just a fucking maw, mm -hmm. you know, that needs to, <laughs> someone needs to shove stuff in. Mm -hmm. And they only want to shove stuff in my maw because they know that every time I lay out, you know, paper money, they're going to take one off the top. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and they can't do that if what I do with my time is grow food, cook it, teach my kids how to, cut, you know, do the same. Like if we're doing all that stuff, that's completely without um, that financial element to it. Mm -hmm. A, you know, your life is so much richer, but they can't get anything out of that. And the fact that, you know, when we, when we participate in the stock market, which of course, like I want to, I've been working my whole life. I mean, I, I, I am at home, but my life is based around my husband's economic activity, which is totally outside the system. It's totally, you know, financial oriented, money based. Like, none. It's just he gets paid for working. That's it. There is no vig. There's no. He doesn't get a piece of the action. And um, you know, but I just feel like it's they've convinced us all because we get that that return. You look at it and you think like, oh my gosh, my four hundred one k is up. Mm -hmm you get so much satisfaction out of that. Like, even if your stock goes up one day, you get a dopamine hit. And it's it's so hateful because, oh. you know, it's it's like when I start to get, think about, uh, you know, I, I hate to even say it because I'm American, but like the separation of church and state thing, I like, I feel like there's a, you know, and I'm such a libertarian, I can hardly choke out the words, but like, we're it, not just economic <laughs> beings. Like we have souls and we have community. Community is what we are mm. and, and family and church. Like we need to, like this system is like, they've totally monetized the human soul. It makes me sad. Yeah. Well, you know, that's why I like Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments is is as important, if not more important, than the wealth of nations. I'm not going to pretend that I've read them both because 
not exactly page turners, but... <laughs> but what know. is it, though? What's in a nutshell? The moral sense? I've never even heard of that before. No, so it's Adam Smith's... Uh, it's it's his more philosophical work on, uh, you know, he says things like man desires not just to be loved, but to be loved, lovely, right? People want to not just have things and consume, but they want to be good and they want to be admirable beings. And, and so it's a lot of those. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, so people people pin this whole like economic automaton, uh, homo economicus species that the economics profession has, you know, supposedly turned us into or whatever. People blame all that on Adam Smith. And it's like, that was not Adam Smith's take at all. He was a very well-rounded philosopher. You know, he wasn't, anyway. Interesting. And I was kind of throwing him under the bus recently because- Because you had Courtney Turner on the show and she was talking about Smith and Hayek. Yep, I listened. I'm a I'm a little <laughs> off on the on the whole enlightenment. I used to love it. I was a big fan of the Scottish Enlightenment, and then I just started to like, oh, those Gnostics. I don't know, man. That was the beginning of the end of my fantasy of like this uh, having leaders who love us. I just think society is probably just too big. We're just it's just too fucking big. Three hundred fifty million people or whatever is just too many people oh, to. Yeah. You know, they're not, they don't love you. They can't love you. You can't love them. That's why I don't even care about like when they, when there's like mass tragedies or whatever. It's like, I'm like more worried about my dog is sick. You know, like I'm literally like more worried. Not that I love dogs more than human beings, but it's impossible for me to care about something so abstract. Likewise, the politicians cannot care about me at all. They cannot. And, uh, but look, when you, you know, over the decades, it just turns into a horrible monster. Anyway, but that's not to say that I'm negative or down. I just think it's important to point out, like, these things we talk about, they do leave out something much more important. And and so these guys talk about, like, all we care about is juicing the economy, but whatever— yeah, and it, and they there's certain cat there's certain swaths of of that society that don't benefit when you just invest the time and the energy and the money to invest in yourself, right? So things like um, it, you know anything that's entrepreneurial entrepreneurial driven um, I've totally mispronounced that word, but um, anything that's that's self ownership driven is like it it doesn't it doesn't find its way at least not as much. The dollars don't find their way to the same things as, you know, me working for a fortune 500 corporation and spending all that time and energy in that, um, you know, cause people, they want to get certified when they're in the, when they're on the corporate treadmill, they want to get a certification. They want to go get a master's degree so that they can get promoted. And it's like, yeah, all of, all of this time is still going to this fortune 500 corporation that, you know, you're easily replaceable and everything. The time that you spend, um, you know, that that entrepreneurs and, you know, people who are just uh, like one thing I started doing recently is actually um, working part time for a roofing company because um, I had to get a new roof and I liked what they did. So I, and I wanted to learn about the roofing business. So yes, I, you know, excellent. Yeah. So cool. you get your vitamin D, drink some buttermilk. Okay. Are you up on the roof or are you doing their books? Um, no, I, yeah, I've got to get up. Unless you have a drone, uh, you get up on the roof and, you know, look for the image. Well, I'm just, you know, I mean, if it's a big enough company, you could be doing the books. Yeah, but, yeah true. Uh, but no, you want to learn how to do things. I absolutely love that. Yeah. I love that. But if it gets too hot, they, they roofers always just drink buttermilk. Oh, okay. Did you ever hear that? I didn't know that. 
Yeah, so it's yeah, not because of the tar and everything. Yeah, yeah, so it's not the same thing as being a roofer. So I will never install a roof in my life. Just sales, right? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. just yeah. That's what I am asking. Oh, okay, like okay. I'm asking, are you just learning how to do stuff? Mm-hmm. I always send my son to do stuff. He's going to college, but I'm like, hey, go go to a farm, go work on the truck, yep. and you know, yeah, yeah. Something. So he's got to learn how to do stuff. Yeah, yep. you know uh, that kind cool. of stuff that doesn't serve the that doesn't serve the the churn that doesn't serve the system. You know, because that right. company there's a million roofing companies in DFW. This one's a really good one that's been along around for a really long time but you know that's not that's never going to be an avenue that's never going to be a domain that the amazons of the world are going to be able to take over you know so it it doesn't serve yeah you know so interesting okay well that's very hopeful i like that yeah right i mean that means there's something for us that we can do i always thought we should like I thought like the future would be us, you know, whatever, giving massages to each other and everything. But yeah, I'm that, not, there's that too. I think think that's something Teaching that the you arts, can keep doing. You know, the dance world, yes. that's never going to be the avenue oh. of Amazon ever. How was your dance competition over the weekend? Were you in it or were you just watching it? Uh, I, yeah, so I was in it. Um, I, I kind of, I got where I wanted to be. Um, so I wanted to be at least third and I wanted to be on the podium. So if you're top five, wow. the podium. So I got third. Um, it was, this was the Irish dancing tournament. Yeah. Uh, region, regional level. So Southern region U S. Um, so That's yeah, so I great. mean, 10 years ago I was a lot younger and I got first in my last one. Um, but I'm, I'm content with where I was just, you know, having, it was, I took, even though my Syrian grandmother, colored my skin mm-hmm. my uh irish grandparents were super irish they're from ireland and we all took irish dancing and it was i just remember how fun it was yeah it was just so fun because you you know what you're supposed to do you have the steps it's not like you know we're at a disco and yeah, you know right. you, don't, you don't know what to mm-hmm. do it's just so fun you do it together and it's like so much energy and the music is great and uh yeah i just think it's super fun i i I I like to watch it, but I loved to do it. Yeah, a little jig here and there. But uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. so congratulations on that, Thank a you. little achievement. Um, but we we have to talk about China. Yeah. Um, and we also have a oh, list first of, of all, we, yeah, uh, Jake, Bitcoin, Jack, Jack Burton. Yeah, yeah. So Bitcoin is behaving like a uh, flight to safety asset right now. It's going up at the at the same time as gold does, and it's going up at the same time bonds do. This is not a realm that I ever imagined that we would be in. Um, but like I said a few minutes ago, the only truth really is the price because you can't um, you make you try to make decisions based on fundamentals. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to control the behavior of millions of people who you don't even know. So what are you going to do? Um, so I actually um, I have, I'm working on reactivating my uh, my mode of investing in Bitcoin and um and Ethereum and a couple of the other ones because I've seen the rally. It's pretty substantial. And like I said, it's actually behaving like a flight safety asset right now. Um, So, Okay, interesting. Yeah, if we're in a full-blown kind of systemic type of crisis in a few months, um, even gold will sell off. Um, Even, you know, Bitcoin, even, even though it's kind of behaving like a safe haven asset right now, it'll probably sell off. It'll probably correct. Because the issue is that 
when you have a lot of big investment institutions with margin calls, they'll sell anything that they can sell. A lot of times that includes gold price, gold contracts. Um, and even if people really want to hold on to their Bitcoin, then they include Bitcoin. So um, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, just to the to the moon from here necessarily. But yeah, I'm definitely um, getting back in. Not with a huge amount of my portfolio. Uh, I think I've mentioned it before, but I think crypto should be like between 5 and 10 so but you're looking to pull back on that in what time frame you were saying it should ease off you oh, were saying yeah, yeah. those those prices are going to back off are you talking about six months from now like the whole like you know the fed supposedly is going to start cutting rates in march or something it right? really right? yeah it really just depends on how systemic this is and i really don't know um, but okay. it's, right now it seems, it seems to be pretty systemic, um, like globe reaching, but I'm just not sure. Again, my selling decisions are determined by what the price does. So if I get in and I lose more than my rule allows me to lose, then you're out and you just look for the next signal to get back in. That's, that's and gains too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And, but you are actively watching it. So mm -hmm. when you say like, okay, got yep. it. So that's, I just want people to understand that this isn't the buy and hold thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 right. exactly. Um, the only thing that I do buy in gold is physical gold and silver. That's what I, that's what I buy and hold. Okay. Well, I, I do that too. Yeah. Uh, Aviva wants to know about Erie roofs. Do you even know what that is? Um, I do not. No, no, I don't know. I'm pretty new to that business. Right. I just started about a month ago. Thank oh, you. Okay. Aviva. Well, we'll ask you that nice question. You. Yes. Congratulations. Aviva is a, a lovely artist in her own right. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, super cool. And anyway, so if you would then tell us about the China thing or anything global you want to talk about. Yeah. So the I guess the missing puzzle piece to what we were talking about um maybe 20 minutes ago or so is that what was the what was the force that caused rates and oil prices those kind of leading indicators to go in the opposite direction from what they were doing so we had you know the, the two-year bond is kind of there they believe higher for longer um the fed funds futures market is saying yeah we believe higher for longer sure up until mid to late november 2023 at the same time as that's happening so what's going on in China right now? They have a really, really big private debt load. They have all of all of these empty apartment buildings, all of this empty real estate that's just been built and built and built and built. China has regimented growth plans. They target a rate of economic growth and they will do anything to achieve it. That's that's what they do. The Chinese the Chinese government will allow as much credit to be created as it needs to be in order to make that GDP number what they want it to be. Okay. GDP growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, I think they've been sitting at a, like a 5% target for a long time now. Would building empty buildings juice GDP? Yes, it does. Any spending, any spending juices GDP. Uh, any spending it. Uh, for a while there, they were encouraging us to look at like a command and control economy as something we should aspire to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so the government could literally borrow, um, okay, so the size of the American economy is, let's say it's, I think it's 23 trillion, but to use like really nice round numbers, let's say 25. Um, so, which is not a round number, incidentally. Um, but anyway, so let's say it's a quarter of a hundred, right? That's that's what I mean by round. Um, so it's $25 trillion. The government could literally borrow $15 trillion 
and just spend it on thumbtacks. And that would increase GDP by, uh, you know, however many, you know, uh, three fifths. The, the the GDP would go up by three fifths. They can spend it on thumbtacks. They could spend it on um, book covers that they would just leave empty and not even print anything on, just flimsy book covers, and then throw them into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, there's a joke about the uh, broken window fallacy, where if war is good for GDP, then this is a uh, Bob Murphy. If if anybody has ever has never heard of Bob Murphy, he's a really great economist. Um, but there's a, a joke that he tells. Where it's like, okay, if war is so good for GDP, then every single year, what the government needs to do is borrow a crap ton of money. They should buy a bunch of aircraft carriers, and then they should sail the air. This every single year, they should sail the aircraft carriers out into the middle of the ocean, get everybody off the aircraft carriers, and load the guns such that they can be automated, such that the triggers can be pulled uh, automatically from a distance, you know, remotely is what I mean. And then they should just destroy each other out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, (laughs) sink to the bottom of the ocean, and then everybody goes home, they build more aircraft carriers, they do it all over again every single year. (laughs) That would be the perfect economic stimulus package. Nothing could go wrong, right? So yes. I feel like a little bit, that does happen. Didn't they say like during the Afghanistan war, like they blew up the same caves like 5,000 times? Like oh, the yeah. same cave was, oh I'm yeah. So like even friend. now, every once in a while, I just feel like they're just, the reason they drop 20,000 bombs a year on Syria is because they have bombs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because North so Rome, he's not Roman that far isn't going to get more orders unless we use the bombs. Right? Yes. Yeah. But I think a bit, bigger point is that we're still producing food and clothes, and we're still doing, we're, we're not noticing that they're pissing all that away, right, of course, right. but yes, yes, yes. Yep. So uh, taken to the extreme. Yep, Gentleman Skeptic says, yeah, it makes sense. Build empty buildings, create jobs, keep manufacturing afloat. Yep. And so maybe steel as a leading indicator can be misleading because they, they're probably gobbling up all the steel for that stuff. Well, and it's, but it's not necessarily misleading because it's taken, right, like China has not officially had a recession or a banking crisis in, you know, something like 30 years. So the entire time that they've been building up this massive debt load, it really, like, they they have yet to really face the consequences for it. And we were talking about timing earlier. And if you have a command and control economy, it's really not clear when those chickens come home to roost, right? If, if the government can keep the credit tap flowing, and if they don't care how wasteful the projects are that they spend it on, you know, it's, where does that really go? I'm tempted to think that it would be a, a um, collapse of the currency because nobody would want to hold the rem- the renminbi anymore. Um, I would think that maybe that's how it would how it would all transpire, and that would be kind of an inflationary co- collapse. But on the other hand, if you're coming down from a massive debt load, then that usually means, in fact, probably always means deflation. So, yeah, um, it's really hard telling. But the but what's going on in in China right now in their financial market is basically a um, is basically a disaster. So in 2021, they started to allow their economy to deleverage. And anytime I say deleverage, I mean allow some of the loans to default, stop pumping out credit. And necessarily, when you're in a fractional reserve banking system, when you stop credit, that induces you can't have level. 
right? In fractional reserve banking, you can't have level. Credit can't stop. It either goes up or it goes down. And the reason for that is because it's it's what uh, Hyman Minsky called uh, economists from back in the 50s, 60s. It's what he called Ponzi finance. So you have to have the new inflow of credit to pay off the old debt. That's the only way a fractional reserve banking works. And when you have the credit tap turn off, it necessitates a drop in the outstanding amount of debt. Like you, like I said, you just can't have level. So the Chinese government knew that there was a huge buildup and a huge uh, unsustainable boom, or at least I think they did, in the real estate sector. And so they they used their credit policy, their levers, to stop allowing the continued expansion of credit into that sector. So their two biggest development uh, real estate developers, Evergrande and Country Garden, started to have a lot of financial problems around that time. So 2021 into 2022, that was a big story. Um, Evergrande's bonds right. were trading around. That. Yeah. So Evergrande's bonds were trading uh, back in 2021. They were trading around, in May, I think it was. They were trading around 83 $82, $83 or cents on the dollar for those bonds. Um, by the end of the year, they hit 15. Now they trade around two. Okay. So China has all of these. Um, China has a massive shadow banking system. So you have a regular banking system where you've got banks that take deposits and they make loans. A lot of those banks are state-owned. A lot of those banks' activities are controlled by the state. Like I said, they have a lot more of these levers where if they want to juice credit in order to juice economic activity, they can do that. They also have this massive shadow banking system. So they have all these trust companies, about $3 trillion worth is about the size of the industry. And that's why I say it kind of mirrors the panic of 1907, because the companies implicated in that crash back then were primarily trusts, not your con conventional banks. Trust companies used to be really big in the U.S. from like the 1890s up to you know basically 1907, 1908. But they have a really big uh, trust sector and they have a really big uh, sector of non-bank financial institutions. They sell to Chinese households, both wealthy and not wealthy, these things called WMPs, wealth management products. Now, a lot of analysis of financial crisis gets caught up in the details of these different products. That's why 2008, everybody thinks about mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps. That's all a kind of an unnecessary distraction from the force that's really the, the gravity that's really underlying, which is you have credit expansion and then you have credit bust. That's how they that's the commonality between every financial crisis in history. There's always a credit expansion. The expansion necessitates the bust because of fractional reserve banking can't level. It can only go up or it can only go down. Um but the deal with these China's WMPs is they're literally just fancy time deposits that pay higher interest rates than bank accounts. That's all it is. So China's had really low rates for a long time, just like the rest of the world. Um, they've used that because it's been difficult to stimulate their economy. They have not had a rate hike. This, this is the thing about China. They have not had a rate hike since before the COVID pandemic. So while all the other central banks in the world have increased their interest rates, theirs have been going down. So some of their rates are below 2% now. Yeah. How far do they have to go? Uh, not very. How yeah. much more could they go? Yeah, so right now their seven-day rate is 1.8. So they can they can only get lower than 1.8. That's all they can do. That's all, that's all the room they have. So mid-October, um, so, so this has been, and, and think about this in the context of the peak of the housing bubble was July of 2006 in the United States. 
it wasn't until August of 2007 that we started to see the precursors to the financial crisis. And it wasn't until September of 2008 where Lehman Brothers collapsed, which is what people peg as being, you know, like the start when it really, really got back. So that's two years. So we're two years into China's saga from, you know, the collapse of Evergrande, uh, from the beginning of the deleveraging to kind of everybody well, not everybody, but people who pay attention to China realizing, okay, there's probably a, an issue in the real estate sector. We're two years out from that, basically. And now it's really starting to heat up. So what happened in China in October is their overnight funding market. So their overnight market where the the shadow banks that I talked about, these non-bank financial institutions, they go in there to borrow money and it's Ponzi finance, right? Maybe they don't have the actual organic cash flows from the business. Maybe the developers don't in order to pay off all of those investors. But if they can borrow money from the overnight market, they can live to fight another day. Well, those when that when that overnight market or when that, you know, one week and one month, when those markets freeze up, like we talked about at the very beginning, when you see that LIBOR spread blow out for the United States in um, August 2007, same sort of thing. When you start to see that, and that's when those companies start to go bust. Because if you can't that's borrow when the music stops. that's when the music stops. Exactly. Yes. And so that happened in China in October. And that is the turning point when all of these indicators across the world, it's not just us, it's Great Britain's bond yields, it's Germany's bond yields have done the exact same things as ours. So it's the bond interest rates, it's the interest rate futures, it's everything. The turning point coincided perfectly with the bad stuff that's happening in China. So so interest rates go down during... So they the Fed lowers rates mm -hmm. to combat recession, but you're saying that actual rates start going down first. Yes, in uh, almost all cases, that's right. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, I never think of it that way. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. So if you look at if you look oh, back what? at any different financial, uh, you know the. 2008 is is obviously a is a great and recent example, but the two year uh, bond rate, the one year bond rate, the even the three month, those start tanking long before the Fed cuts rate. So if they hadn't ginned up the COVID thing and all the inflation that followed, there would have been a bloodbath, in my opinion, a bloodbath because it was 11 years out in the expansion. Mm -hmm. The interest rates were two percent. Oh yeah, interest yeah, yeah. rates would have had to go down, mm. which means that you know they they there would be. See, I can't I can't get my mind around the fact that the interest rates go down first, because because I would think when the recession is coming that there would be a tremendous demand for borrowing and interest rates would go up because mm -hmm. you'd have sicker companies well, and that's why the Fed lowers the rate. But they, but they do. You're actually completely right. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. So what happens okay. is the money rates go up. The flight to safety rates go down. Right. So, so when, uh, because and it, that's like what we, what we first talked about at the, at the beginning of the episode. So LIBOR, that's the rate that a bank has to pay to borrow for three months. That is going through the roof. 
But at the same time, okay. the three-month bond yield, right, or the the interest rate on the three-month U.S. government bond is going to go down. The rate on the two-year so U.S. The government bond is going is, down. The spread is going way out. It's just getting it's is well widening. Out. Okay, yeah, the spread is a total. Oh, goal. right. I understand. Yeah. Okay, so obviously the only game in town is the U.S. government. Yeah, or the German and government. And you're willing to pay, take British nothing. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying you're willing to take nothing mm-hmm. to get a to piece get of that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yep. I understand. Yep. So the flight to safety rates they go down, but all the other rates, it's basically the risk rates, the the rates with mm-hmm. any counterparty risk at all. Yeah. The U.S. government does have counterparty risk, but everybody thinks it doesn't, right? So we have to pretend that it doesn't. It doesn't right now. I don't think. Yeah. No. No. I mean, you can always. Because they can always print. I mean, the risk is ultimately inflation, but that's, yeah, that's a whole different conversation. Uh, but yeah, so the. <laughs> right. But that's just, that just means it's, it's actually a real negative rate. Yeah. But it's not a risk of default. Correct. I would say right now, there's basically no risk of default. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a. Okay. Yep, perfect characterization. So yeah, the, okay. the 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 rates so with shit, counterparty risk go like, up and the I'm rates panicked. with no counterparty risk go down. So uh October 15th, I think it was, the People's Bank of China, that's their Fed, they inject a hundred billion dollars into the market. That's their biggest stimulus since 2020. Hundred billion. It's nothing to us, right? But that's, that's for them. Pish posh. <laughs> I know, yeah. But for them, that's their biggest stimulus since 2020. Um, but how can it matter? In, how can it make a difference? How could that possibly make a difference? Um, well, central Oh, because it's their Fed. Do yeah, they yeah. have fractional reserve banking? Oh, yeah, of course they do. Mm-hmm. So is that going directly to the Fed level? Well, I believe the way that they do it is they inject it into the repo market. So uh, the those overnight loans, so they right. put it in the repo market and then all of those troubled banks. So if a central bank, it's the central bank is going to lend to its member banks. The, this is kind of the way that they work. The central bank is going to lend to its member banks. The member banks are going to lend to those troubled shadow banking firms that are having all of this trouble getting uh, getting loans overnight so that they can pay their obligations. So it's kind of, it's, it's a two-step thing. That's usually how it goes. Um, it's, it's very similar to, to what the Fed did in Kuwait, very similar to what the Fed did in 2020. Um, if the problem is the corporations can't get loans, the corporations can't sell their bonds, well, then the Fed is going to offer the banks loans to which they can post those bonds as collateral, and then the banks will lend money to you know whoever. So it's 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 usually a two step process. It's a it's all okay. To, all right. Yeah, it's all getting around the okay, legal so now, restrictions and whatnot. All right, so they're they're engaging in the maximum amount of I don't know if you're calling it stimulus yeah, yeah. or bailout. So they're or in what? stimulus mode, and then a few days ago it was I don't know if it was Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal. I'll find it the link and I'll send it to you. But uh, it hit the hit the news that they're quant- that they are contemplating their own version of QE, right? So China doesn't do QE, but they do QE. What China does is they do what the U.S. government, what the U.S. Fed did in World War One. In World War One, the Federal Reserve did not directly go out and buy U.S. government bonds. What they did was they extended credit to its member banks. 
at a fixed rate of interest, a really low one, like 1.52%. And they said, if you buy the U.S. government bonds and then post them to us as collateral, then we'll make sure you have the credit to go and do that. And so by extension, they were making sure that there was always a market for U.S. government bonds and that that market would only charge a really low rate of interest. That's what China is about to do with their real estate sector. It's targeted quantitative easing that basically takes a two-step process or a backdoor, whatever you're going to call it. They're saying, we're going to make money available to our member banks at an interest rate of, you know, call it 1%, 1.5%. The banks are then going to go lend it out to all of their shadow bank friends, the Evergrands and the uh, Country Garden and, all of, and some of these trust companies who are no doubt getting loans from the... Um, from the actual banks in China. And then they're going to post those loans as collateral to the People's Bank, and the People's Bank is going to keep that credit afloat. That's basically China's version of QE. And, you know, like I said, a few a few days ago, or maybe uh, probably sometime last week, we heard that that was probably going to be going to be in play. And I don't know when they're actually going to start, um, but the journal's report was that they're contemplating it. And then the other thing, um, you know, again, money rates are, like I said, they're the canary in the coal mine. So money rates for some borrowers in China on October 31st, 30th, 31st, something like that, they hit 50% for some of these non-bank financial. Yeah. So. um, Whoa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's restructuring. I mean, they should just buy their own <laughs> right. bonds in the open yeah, market so you have, at that point. So you have some of these borrowers who are, you know, so they're paying 50% for seven-day money, basically. Um, the reference rate or the benchmark for that would be the People's Bank of China's rate, which is 1.8. Um, and then and then in the at the same time, that was only applied to some borrowers, right? So not everybody's having to pay for 50%, but some are. Uh, it's very similar, actually, to what happened in September 2019. That's basically what's happening to China right now, is September 2019 coupled with a huge, yeah, a huge yes, that uh, crazy downfall repo in thing. the real yeah. estate sector. So their own uh, real estate, uh, their own real estate deflation plus September 2019 is basically what's happening to China right now. And the central bank is responding. They've gone from any possible indication of tightening mode, which they were never really in because they haven't raised any rates, but they have gone from any um, pretend tightening mode to full stimulus mode. Let's get this going again, baby, somehow, you know, um, and the, and it's just the, the fact that, you know, this could be isolated to China, but the fact that the German bond yields, the British bond yields, the U.S. bond yields, and all of the interest rate futures are all doing the same, and oil prices at the same time, just tells me that there is something systemic here that we are not necessarily going to understand until it all kind of, you know, until we're in September 2008 mode, um, or until maybe a year after that when somebody really digs in and can illuminate all the different connections. Um, but the again, the truth is in the price, and all of the prices are around around the world are saying this is not limited to China. So so what do you have an expectation for how bad it could get in China? Is there enough like actual information out there? Are you looking at that? Well, I think that the risk for China, is that they have not allowed a full deleveraging. So like I said, they've been piling onto this debt bubble for 30 years. 
a lot of that debt is is denominated in dollars, and that's really the stuff that they have trouble paying. So their risk is honestly like they're having deflation right now, but they're they do they do run the risk of having a really bad inflationary spiral where the central bank can't juice that uh, credit sector anymore, and uh, just just based on the fall in the value of their currency. Now they can continue to prop up their currency for a really long time because they have about three trillion dollars in um, foreign exchange reserves. So if the value of the Chinese renminbi falls too much, the uh, People's Bank or the the Monetary Authority, whatever, they can sell some dollars and they can sell some euros and some yen, and then they can prop up the value of the renminbi. They can do that for a really long time just because they have a ton of F, of FX reserves relatively. Um, mm-hmm. But I, but I think it, you know if they continue to have to just prop up their currency that way, and they try to stimulate more credit, what's going to happen is that that credit is just going to get used to pay off the old debt. It's not going to generate any more activity, and so they could actually start to see a lot more unemployment, um, and you know just a really crappy economic stagnation, kind of what happened, like what happened to Japan after 1990. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me something that artificial, that systemic, that big. Mm-hmm that doesn't have a lot of natural ways to work it yeah. out could they be basically block a the decades exit. long thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 They basically block the exit and, and it's kind of similar to what happened to, to Britain between, you know, the world war one and the great depression. There was not a great time to be in Britain either because they were, tr- because they were artificially keeping the exchange rate against gold higher than it should have been. And so, and they were manipulating that with monetary policy. And then you had the Fed manipulating that with their monetary policy. And so the economy just stagnated, you know, in the US, we're having the roaring 20s. And in, the, in Britain, I mean, they really, they really paid for like 25 years for their World War One, you know, <laughs> they had basically two decades yeah. of depression, and then another World War. So yeah, it's, it's, it's looking like a uh, that's that's what I would say. That's what I would guess is just a, you know, a, a good lost decade in there for China. So to wrap that up, and where um, you know, I'm interested in right at the second is, and this will be our last, you know, exchange of the night next year. Like under normal circumstances, like the the previous American paradigm, you would expect the Fed to lower rates a little bit, cut rates in an election year to help like the fearless leader at the moment Mm -hmm. and that the incumbent would be the candidate and all of that. So... Are I mean, it looks like they are on track and and the and the fact that that rates lead so you see it happening whether they do it or not. Uh, do you expect that? Like, what do you kind of, what's your outlook for next year in a nutshell? Yeah. So I think that I, I wrote an article and I'll I'll send you the link to this. I think that the Fed is already planning on rate cuts. And I, and I think that they sing, signaled this through the Wall Street Journal on November, I want to say it was 14th. So the CPI reading for October came out and they engineered an article in the Wall Street Journal because the Fed has for 20 or 30 years now, they've had Fed whispers. So the current guy is Nick Timmerhouse. Um, oh yeah, it's in, it's in the white paper too, but um, 
so they put out an article that that totally looked like Fed speak, but the title was "Cooling Inflation Likely Means an End to Fed Rate Hikes." And in Jay Powell's last conference, press conference speech or whatever, he did not rule out further rate hikes, but you kind of have to, you know, weed out what they say from what they do. And I I actually believe that the Fed is looking at what's going on in there, uh, over there, and they are fully anticipating this to have ramifications in Europe and in the U.S., and that they're already planning to set the table for rate cuts. And I think that that's why they put that article in the in the journal on November 14th. So the ramifications of China for the West would be lower rates because money would exit, right? Yeah, uh, lower rates because... Ultimately, that's a drop in demand for the U.S. and Europe. And so, you know, that's that's your recession right there. Uh, you're going to have less demand for inputs from China. I mean, I know we're in net. Oh, I was just thinking to the extent people get to invest in China, I really don't know how it works because they have that weird. Oh, yeah, there's not know, a ton. It's been such a close. There's not a ton of U.S. So investment it's in China. not like you have. You'll have a little bit. For us. Yeah. So for us, like the dollar gets strong, interest rates go down, right. like, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, that's not the impact you're looking at. You're looking at actual like economic, the goods flow. and Yeah. Yada, I'm, yada. I'm looking at that and there, there will be a flow and there already is like, there's been, I think $25 billion leave China in the last year that, that was in, uh, that was in the wall street journal a couple of days ago. Um, but the, the amount of, relatively it's it's like less than 1% of americans asset portfolio is invested in china so it's very limited the amount that can come back um so there there will be an effect for and i think there already is i think that's part of the reason we see these huge declines in the risk free rates in those two year bond rates right is because money is moving from one place to another whether that's china whether that's money moving from China to the U.S. or money moving from somewhere tangential uh, tangential to China, like maybe you know Korea, for instance, to the U.S., who knows? But those price movements mean something, right? It, it means the money is piling in to the U.S. bonds. I mean, yeah, and I and I think that the Fed right now um, sees systemic risk with what's going on in their money market. I think they are concerned that it can that it can spill over to the U.S. and Europe, and and I think that whole I think that November fourteenth thing was literally setting the table for rate cuts, and they you know I think they're here, um, they're going to be cutting rates in the first or second quarter of next year. Like that's I'd say that's base case. Okay, very good. And uh, who do you think is going to be president in February twenty twenty five? Um. I'm going to be real wild, and I'm going to say Gavin Newsom. Whoa. Yeah. Please, God help us all. <laughs> I don't want it. God help us it, but, all. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe Biden, like, holds on until then. But Fair enough. I don't know. I think I, I'm still holding I on. met my best friend out here because it's the craziest story, which you've probably heard because you listen to my show. Mm -hmm. She was walking past my house. In an impeach Gavin Newsom shirt on. I don't know this chick. I just moved into this neighborhood and I talked about it on the show. She heard the show. We posted it so fast that she heard the show while she was still wearing the shirt. Oh, wow. And she tweeted at me for joint Twitter just to tweet at me. I didn't even see her tweet for like a month. Mm -hmm. And now I, you know, I go on that walk with her all the time. Oh, but cool. we bonded over impeach Gavin Newsom. Yep. That's how 
that's how much I do not hope for Gavin. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Nothing, you know, that stuff doesn't matter. I mean, why did they put What you're talking about matters a lot more than who's on the throne. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't, you know, you know, Republicans and Democrats get, it doesn't matter what happens, who gets elected president, you get John McCain. That's what uh, Tom Woods said. Uh, like, yes, it, it's, uh, totally, it's John McCain. for sure. It doesn't matter who you vote for, for sure. you get John McCain. So, <laughs> it's so funny. But yeah, I mean, why did they put him on uh, the debate stage with Ron DeSantis? I don't know. Oh, 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 I know. That's you so know? crazy. Yeah. That's so crazy. So like, is Michelle Obama going to debate Kamala Harris? Like how, what, what weirdness is going to flow? Of course, yeah. you're right. Of course, of course. It's not, yeah, nothing happens for no reason. Yep. Um, okay. Super interesting. So I was thinking that we would wait on the little historical, you know, that the, we have to plug that gap on the Bretton Woods thing on it at another time. But let's see, this happens every time we chit chat and it goes on for like a couple of hours, but people have stuck with us. That's super cool. Um, (laughs) Okay. We got to go. My dog has been badgering me (laughs) to take him out and it's been absolutely great to see you, Jason. Thank you. I know that you're super busy and for you to take that time. Thank y'all for coming. And just can you say again where uh, people can find you? Yeah, Jay Purcell. yeah, just uh, jpurcell.me. And if you want to send me an email, contact at jpurcell.me. And I'm working on uh, getting back on Twitter. So um, I'll yes, so I've missed you there. I've I've missed you. Okay, thank you so much, Jason. See you next time. Thank you all for coming. This has been a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. 